Hi, my name is Isla Watson, and I am your true crime consultant, ready to talk to you about true crime. Hello, 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 everyone. My name is Isla, and I am your true crime consultant, back with a brand new episode. First of all, a very warm welcome, and thank you for being here with me today. I am very excited to be back. I know it's been a little while, but I've been busy, and honestly, it's sometimes very difficult to combine working full-time with having a podcast, having other hobbies, hanging out with friends, you know, just trying to make time for everything in life. There's a lot going on at all times, and I found it quite difficult to find a good balance between doing this podcast and working full-time. And what I was experiencing is that after doing seven episodes in the same style, just focusing on one one case each episode, wasn't doing it for me anymore. I felt as though I was already fall, falling into some boring habits or boring patterns, so to say. So I realized that what I needed to do is mix things up a little. So here we have it today. The concept, the layout of today's episode is going to be a little different than what we've done so far, and that's okay. The focus is, as always, true crime, but we're going to learn a little bit more today. We're going a little bit more into some background, into some theory, and we're focusing on one topic. And then, after learning a little bit about that topic, we're going to discuss three cases. That is correct, not one three true crime cases related to this topic and because we have learned so much about this topic we will we will be really able to discuss this topic and think about it and I hope that you at home or in your car on your way to work wherever you are I hope that you're also able to really think about the scenarios that are happening in these cases and apply what we've learned and think for yourself how do you see this topic how do you how would you apply the law in these cases and you might be thinking what is she talking about what am I thinking about here I get that why don't we just get started with our topic I hope you're ready for today's episode again thank you for being here with me today I'm excited I hope you are as well let's go Kenneth Park Joseph Anthony Mitchell and Brian Thomas. On the outside, these men might not have seemed to have much in common other than being devoted husbands and fathers. Kenneth Park is Canadian and once lived in Pickering, Ontario. Joseph Anthony Mitchell is American and once lived in Durham, North Carolina. And finally, Brian Thomas is British and once lived in Neath, Wales. But the common denominator is that all three men were accused of murder and successfully used a sleepwalking defense in their trials. Having said that, I think it comes as no surprise that the topic we will be discussing today is about sleepwalking as a defense in murder trials. Sleepwalking has been used as a defense in more murder trials than I would have thought. And perhaps more interesting is the fact that it has actually been successful numerous times. But before we look into the murder cases and the trials that followed, let's zoom in on the concept of sleepwalking to give you a better understanding of what it actually is and so that you can also keep this in mind when discussing the three cases. Sleepwalking is also known as somnambulism or noctambulism and it is a phenomenon of sleep and wakefulness combined. It is classified as a sleep disorder and if you thought it was the only sleep disorder out there, you would be wrong. You see, sleepwalking belongs to the parasomnia family. 
So what is, or better said, what are parasomnia? Sleep consists of two very different states. On the one hand, we have the rapid eye movement, or REM sleep, and on the other hand, we have the non-rapid eye movement sleep, or non-REM, and these two alternate in a cyclical fashion. Sleep begins with a shallow stage one of non-REM and deepens to non-REM stages two, three, and four, which are followed by the first brief episode of REM sleep, all within approximately 90 minutes. And after the first cycle, non-REM and REM sleep continue alternating in a cyclical fashion. Each cycle continues lasting about 90 minutes. Stages three and four of non-REM sleep also known as deep sleep or slow wave sleep, happen mainly during the first third of the night. REM sleep episodes become longer as the night progresses, and the longest REM periods are found in the last third of the night. Now, parasomnias can arise during any stage of sleep in both the non-REM and the REM phases of sleep, and they are classified into distinct syndromes on this basis. You see, the type of parasomnia experience differs depending on in which phase or which cycle of sleep they happen. Disorders of arousal, for example, are the most prevalent of the non-REM parasomnias. Typically, disorders of arousal occur during the first third of the night, during the time when deep sleep is most abundant. REM sleep parasomnias, on the other hand, are more likely to emerge during the later portion of the sleep period when REM sleep is most abundant. And upon awakening from a REM parasomnia, an individual is typically alert and has vivid recollection of dream content and mental activity. Individuals with non-REM parasomnias who are awakened during the course of sleep are typically disoriented, confused, and do not recall dreaming at all, and they will, as a result, have no recollection of behavior or mentation in the morning. So they will have completely forgotten what happened. They are regarded as being partially asleep and partially awake. In contrast, individuals with REM parasomnias are regarded as being asleep with liberated motor activity. Now, all of this stuff, I know it's becoming a little bit medical, sciencey, but stay with me here. There is... There is a purpose behind all of this information. It's going to get more interesting. The non-REM parasomnias can be categorized as disorders of arousal and disorders of sleep-wake transition. And during these events, states of sleep and wakefulness coexist and are mixed with one another. The patient is in a state that lies between deep sleep and full wakefulness. They are partially asleep but also partially awake. Now, some some non-REM parasomnias, such as sleepwalking, night terrors, and confusional arousal, are very common during childhood, but they tend to decrease in frequency with increasing age. They can be triggered in certain individuals, especially when you're older, by alcohol, sleep deprivation, physical activity, emotional stress, depression, medications, or fevered illness. So, Essentially, when you're in a more weakened mental state because of all these external factors, you have a higher chance of experiencing these non-REM parasomnias. Now, just to remind you, if you forgot what non-REM stood for, it's non-rapid eye movement. Now, let's go over some non-rapid eye movement parasomnias. To begin with, confusional arousals, and this type of 
parasomnia, this type of sleep disorder, is actually the most innocent. Confusional arousals are mostly common in children. They result from partial or incomplete arousal from deep sleep, typically during the first third of the night. People experiencing confusional arousals will have episodes of confused and slowed thinking, disorientation to time and place, perceptual impairment, and inappropriate responsiveness to external stimuli. It is usually characterized by the person's partial awakening and sitting up to look around, and then they will go back to sleep. And usually they will remain in bed, and like I said, they will go back to sleep. It doesn't happen often that these people will get up because then you're starting to enter the realm of sleepwalking. So complex motor activity, such as grabbing things or standing up, is absent, but individuals may show some automatic behaviors such as picking at their clothes or kicking a little or moving around in bed and sometimes even using objects in ways that they're not intended to be used so someone might pick up their phone beside them and like brush their hair with it or something and this is because again like these people have no idea what's going on they're just in a confused state half asleep half awake and you know when they wake up the next day they will not have even remembered that this took place. Now these episodes are not accompanied by any expressions of terror or sleepwalking and they typically last from 1 to 10 minutes. And although they are very different from sleep terrors and sleepwalking, like these are very innocent episodes, as we will soon discuss the difference as well, you will learn to what extent sleep terrors and sleepwalking is different from these confusional arousals. Confusional arousals may evolve into more serious stages of sleep disorder. But in essence, confusional arousals are very innocent and in our cases that we will discuss later do not really play much of a role. But it's still important, I think, or relevant to know the difference. Now next we have the sleep terrors, also referred to as night terrors or pavor nocturnus. Sleep terror attacks arise abruptly, usually during the first third of the night. And this tends to be the most disruptive arousal disorder since it may involve loud screams and absolute panic. In extreme cases, it may result in bodily harm or property damage because the person will be so frightened and shocked they will get up and they might run and hit something like a wall or they might move around so violently in bed that they might hit themselves against the wall, for example. Now, people are also known to harm the person sleeping beside them. All attempts to console the person usually do not work, and this could even extend the episode or intensify this confused state. And people with violent post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, are usually more sensitive to having sleep terrors. And and like with the confusional arousals, people with a more weakened a more weakened emotional state, I guess, or mental state, are more prone to experiencing night terrors or sleep terrors, as, for example, people that have PTSD. Then we have somniloquy or sleep talking, and this one is pretty straightforward as this is just a a form of parasomnia where a person speaks during their dreams. And this could be just people mumbling words randomly, but it could also be people having full conversations in their sleep And again, not remembering anything the next morning. But if they have a partner sleeping beside them, that person will tell them, hey, you were literally having a whole conversation last night. What was that about? And the person will just say, I have no idea what you're talking about. So if you do 
talk in your sleep, I highly recommend recording or downloading one of those apps that records you in your sleep so that you know what you talk about in your sleep. And uh, if you happen to have this and are willing to share your midnight sleep conversations with us, please do so. I would love to hear them. In any case, let's move on. We have two more non-REM disorders to talk about. The next one is sleep-related abnormal sexual behavior, also referred to as sleep sex or sexomnia. And this is a form of confusional arousal that can overlap with sleepwalking. During this kind of parasomnia, a person will engage in sexual acts while still asleep. And this could include masturbation, inappropriate fondling of themselves or unfortunately others, or having sex with another person, and in more extreme cases, sexual assault. And these behaviors are unconscious and frequently happen without dreaming. And again, the person will not remember that this happened. So yeah, it's very already shocking to kind of read or learn about the fact that someone could sexually assault someone else while asleep. And to me, it also brings up the question, how legally responsible is someone who does that or who does anything wrong or bad while being asleep? But let's continue with our final non-REM sleep disorder, and that is sleepwalking also known as somnambulism, as I previously mentioned. Sleepwalking consists of a series of complex behaviors that are initiated during slow-wave sleep and results in walking during sleep. Typically, the person sits up in bed during the first third of the night, looks around with a blank stare, and exhibits some repetitive motor automatisms, such as picking at their clothes, or touching around them, or grabbing things. Then they get up, and they walk around the room, they could enter other rooms in the house, and in some cases, they might even leave the house. During these sleepwalking episodes, the individual exhibits decreased awareness and impaired responsiveness to their surroundings, and they can be very difficult to awaken. The person will appear clumsy, uncoordinated, and very prone to self-inflicted injuries. They may trip over furniture, sustain cuts after walking into mirrors. They could fall down a flight of stairs, and people have even known, been known to walk through windows. You see, the fact is, these people have no idea what they are doing, and they are simply completely unaware of their environment. It is quite mind-blowing to me that these people sleepwalking are capable of doing so much and causing so much damage to themselves and their surroundings, yet there isn't a thought behind those eyes. Even more complex behaviors such as cooking, eating, or driving can occur. So someone could be sleepwalking, not aware of anything, and get in their car and drive somewhere. And that is something that we will talk about in our first case. It's going to get crazy, people. Now, sleepwalking episodes usually last less than 15 minutes, although episodes lasting more than one hour have been reported. Attempts to awaken a sleepwalker usually fail and may lead to quite aggressive and violent responses. And cases of sleepwalking violence, including homicidal somnambulism, so homicidal sleepwalking, have been reported, as obviously we will soon discuss. Sleepwalking episodes usually end with the person returning to bed and resuming sleep, but sleepwalkers may also wake up to find themselves in weird places, somewhere outside, somewhere, basically anywhere but their own bed. And as you can imagine, when they wake up 
and they're not in their bed, they will be very confused. And WTF, how did I end up here, right? Now, when they wake up, they often have little or no memory at all of what they did while sleepwalking. And because their consciousness has altered into a state in which memories are very difficult to recall. And although, although their eyes are open, their expression is dim and glazed over. So essentially that is the non-rapid eye movement parasomnia family. And again, these people, no memory of what happened, no idea what's going on. But when we move on to the rapid eye movement or the REM parasomnia family, things change a little for us. Now, the of the rapid eye movement sleep disorders, the REM sleep behavior disorder or RBD is the best studied REM sleep parasomnia. So that it is the REM sleep behavior disorder. Now, unlike non-REM parasomnias, REM sleep behavior disorders is actually more common in the elderly. Uh, whereas the non-REM, what we learn is that it's more common in younger people or in children, actually. The age of onset is typically between 50 and 60 years old, and men are more affected than women. Now, essentially, with REM sleep behavior disorder parasomnia, people seem to be living out their dreams. And these people are not experiencing or living out ordinary dreams. No, the dreams that end up being enacted are altered and more threatening, and they're often just frightening nightmares. People with REM sleep behavior disorder also report increased violent content of dreams. Behaviors in these individuals include limb and body jerking, punching, kicking, talking, even shouting and swearing, leaping from bed, running away into walls or furniture, and sometimes they even hit or choke their bed partner. Now, as you can understand, these people are experiencing something very frightening and life-threatening often. So they're trying to defend themselves. They're trying to get away from this very scary situation, which is why their reactions often are so intense and physical. Now, since episodes occurring during their REM sleep, behaviors may recur in a cyclical fashion. So it's possible that in one night, every 90 minutes or so throughout someone's sleep, they are reliving, re-experiencing this very terrible nightmare. And the frequency of dream enactment ranges from a few times a week to nightly. So imagine if you have such a bad case of REM sleep behavior disorder, you could be having these violent nightmares every night. And that thought is honestly terrifying to me. Now, after being awakened, individuals are actually able to recall and describe vivid dreams, usually of a threatening nature. People typically describe threatening dreams in which they are pursued or in danger with attempts to escape or fight back. And upon awakening, they're often still very scared and frightened. And it's because it just feels so real. Maybe you've had a similar dream good or bad, where you felt the dream was just so real and you wake up feeling as though it might have really happened. I know myself, I've had dreams that I woke up and had to think, did this really happen or not? And thankfully, touch wood, I haven't had that many intense, scary nightmares. But I think we all know that feeling of having had a dream that just felt so real. But then imagine that happening, but with a dream that is so frightening, you thought your life was in danger and really had to fight back. Honestly, no thank you. 
And in our case today, we will actually, or in our final case of today, we will actually discuss a situation where a husband was dealing with a REM sleep behavior disorder and he had he had a nightmare and actually ended up hurting his wife that was asleep next to him. And another characteristic of people experiencing this in their day-to-day life, they're not violent people at all. It is completely uncharacteristic for them to react so violently. But under such stress in their dreams, they will act violently. And it's such an interesting contrast to see that when someone is not completely aware or when they're asleep, they will react in a certain way that's very different from them during the day. But then again, of course, they're going to react so violently or, or crazy because they they are experiencing something very frightening, very life-threatening. So they're trying to save themselves or protect themselves or maybe someone else. But in any case, these are the non-REM parasomnias and the REM parasomnia. So the main distinction, I would say, between the two is that usually people experiencing non-REM parasomnias will not remember at all what happened, whereas people experiencing the REM parasomnias and really live out these very scary nightmares, they tend to remember exactly what they were dreaming about. Now, in all three cases that we will discuss soon, sleepwalking was used as a defense in the trials. But the question is, is sleepwalking or parasomnia a legally sound and fair defense? What I find interesting is the area in these cases where the medical science and the legal responsibility meet each other. During an episode of parasomnia, people are neither awake nor aware, but their actions do appear conscious. And as these actions move beyond innocent ones, such as saying embarrassing things and walking around in one's underwear, and enter the area of sexual assault and homicide, the question about how important is legal responsibility becomes more important. Because to what extent can you find someone legally responsible for their actions if at the time that they committed these actions, they were technically, to some degree, unconscious mentally? Now, as you can imagine, from both a medical and a legal perspective, parasomnias that result in illegal activity, particularly violence, present quite a difficult scenario. Shreya Popat and William Winslade wrote an extremely interesting paper on exactly this. And I took some insights about how the law looks at parasomnias and illegal activities from their 2015 paper, While You Were Sleepwalking, Science and Neurobiology of Sleep Disorders and the Enigma of Legal Responsibility of Violence During Parasomnia. I will link, I will add a link to this article so that you can read it for yourselves as well, which I highly recommend, by the way. It's a very interesting read. But essentially, they say that understand how the law deals with violence committed during parasomnia, a preliminary review of legal theory is required. And this brings us, or their focus here is on the common law legal systems as found in Great Britain and most of its former colonies. The, these common law legal systems discuss two components to every crime, actus reus, which is the criminal act itself, and mens rea, which is the criminal intent. And these components are derived from the Latin phrase actus non facet reum nisi mens sit rea, 
which means the deed does not make a man guilty unless his mind is guilty. If one of these components is missing, the defendant is essentially acquitted. Now, in the sleepwalking cases we discussed today, and actually all sleepwalking cases, essentially the mens rea, or the criminal intent to harm someone, is always missing. Because again, someone is acting unconscious, they're not aware. In addition, the person is neither awake, aware, nor are they able to decide to not act. Now, such actions are legally termed automatisms. And essentially, parasomnias are clearly automatisms. And an automatism usually leads to legal acquittal due to the lack of mens rea. Currently, automatisms are commonly divided into two categories, sane and insane automatisms. Sane automatisms result from an external factor, such as a blow to the head, and result in complete acquittal. But insane automatisms are due to some sort of internal factor, like a brain tumor or a psychological disorder, referred to as disease of the mind. And they traditionally result in compulsory confinement in a psychiatric facility. And you might be thinking to yourself, why are we talking about this distinction between sane and insane automatism. And I will tell you why. Because this distinction between sane and insane automatisms presents a dilemma for discussions of violence committed during episodes of parasomnia. Almost all scholars consider parasomnias an effect of some sort of neurological sleep disturbance. With this internal type of cause, violent actions performed during parasomnias seem to fall into the category of insane automatisms. But it hardly seems fair or appropriate to place someone who sleepwalks in a mental institution, right? Because they are not mentally ill, they just have problems sleeping. So, but at the same time, it is also inappropriate or unfair to let someone who experiences parasomnia to walk away from such violent actions free of any legal responsibility and with no further requirements to take proper steps to manage the parasomnias. As a result, the classification as a sane automatism seems insufficient too. So overall, the implication of this sanity or insanity distinction is one that makes little sense when we talk about parasomnias. And I hope you're with me here, because if we take a look at this from a legal perspective, we're talking about true crime, we always want people to face justice, we want the legal system to work, and whenever someone is a murderer, that they get arrested, that they get put in jail. But if we look at this parasomnia situation and apply the law, if we look at this sanity or insanity distinction for automatism, it is very difficult to apply the law here because how much legal responsibility do you put on this person? It's not fair to say they're mentally ill and place them in a mental institution because they're not mentally ill. But is it fair to say, okay, you can walk freely? Now, now our first case resulted in a leading Supreme Court of Canada decision on the criminal automatism defense in Roe v. Parks, 1992. Let's begin with our first case, Kenneth Parks. On an early morning on May 24, 1987, Kenneth Parks drove 17 miles or 20 kilometers from Pickering, Ontario to the house of his in-laws in Scarborough, Ontario. He entered their house with a key that they had previously given him and used a tire iron to bludgeon his mother-in-law to death. 
He then turned on his father-in-law and tried to choke him to death, but he was unsuccessful. He then got back in his car, and Kenneth, despite being covered in blood, instead of going home, he actually immediately drove to a nearby police station and confessed. He turned himself into the police and said, I think I have just killed two people. And I think this is very interesting because we mentioned initially that usually sleepwalking episodes take no more than 15 minutes, but it has been reported that sleepwalking episodes can last more than an hour. And I just want you to imagine someone is asleep. They're not really conscious. They're neither awake nor asleep, but essentially they're not mentally aware of what they're doing, but they're, and they're completely an automatic pilot. They get up, they get in their car, you know, they grab their car keys first, they get in their car, they turn the car on, they drive 17 miles or 20 kilometers, they then leave their car, use the key of the in-law parent, so they have to know also, by the way, which key they're using, because it's obviously not the same as their car key, not the same of their house key. So they use the correct key to enter the house of their in-laws, opens the door, finds a tire iron. Now, I'm not sure if he found that in his car or in the house, but then he walked to the bedroom of his in-laws, bludgeoned his mother-in-law to death, then dropped the tire iron, and then tried to strangle his father-in-law to death. And all of this happened while he was asleep. Now, you might find this hard to believe, because I definitely did, but there was a trial. And at trial, Kenneth argued that he was automatistic, so he was an automatic pilot, and that he was not criminally liable. In his defense, a doctor actually testified as to his mental state at the time of the murder. From the doctor's evidence, it was determined that Kenneth was sleepwalking at the time of this incident and that he was suffering from a disorder of sleep rather than from a neurological, psychiatric, or other illness. So this brings us to the fact that he was automatistic, right? So he's the automatism defense, but he is not insane. So it's not insane automatism. Now, five neurological experts also confirmed that he was sleepwalking during the time of the incident. After this, the jury acquitted Kenneth Parks. He was found not guilty and he was able to walk free. So because there was no insane automatism, then you have to say, okay, sane automatism, external factors, he's free. But this made me wonder if these doctors were able to confirm that he was dealing with sleeping disorder... Was Kenneth aware prior to this murder that he was a sleepwalker? Was he aware that he had difficulty sleeping or that he had a sleeping disorder? Because if that is the case, can you then say, okay, Kenneth, you were aware of your sleep problems. You have some sort of responsibility here. I don't know, but maybe you could share your thoughts on that with me. I would love to hear from you. Now, Chief, Chief Justice Antonio Lamer agreed with the trial judge because this went up to the Supreme Court in Canada, and he said that the trial judge was correct in his analysis of the evidence and his decision not to characterize sleepwalking as a mental disorder. And on that part, I agree. I think it's valid and fair to say sleepwalking is not a mental disorder because, again, during the day when these people are awake, they're not mentally ill. So it would be absolutely incorrect to put these people in mental institutions and I do not think that that would be a fair outcome. That would also not be justice. 
But then again, that gray area of legal responsibility, to what extent can you find someone with parasomnia legal responsibility? That remains, right? Now, in Kenneth Park's case, we can clearly say that the mens rea was absent. We have six doctors here testifying this man was sleepwalking. You know, the medical science was on his side. If he was sleepwalking, then yeah, there was no criminal intent. If Kenneth was truly sleepwalking throughout the entire attack on his in-laws, then he had no conscious intention to harm them. And I will keep coming back to it, but it is the fact that someone is not able to form conscious intentions while sleepwalking that makes it so difficult from a legal perspective. Because again, how much legal responsibility can you put on someone who committed an act while sleepwalking? And that brings us to our next case. And this one is... This one's very tragic, very emotional, because I'm about to talk about children being harmed. So beware. Our next case is about Joseph Anthony Mitchell. On September 21st, 2010, Joseph Anthony Mitchell went to bed and nothing seemed wrong. The next thing he remembers is waking up in Duke University Hospital the following day. But what he didn't know is that in those missing hours, he committed the most heinous of acts. He suffocated his four-year-old son, Blake Mitchell, to death. He then attempted to kill his 10-year-old son, Devon, and his 13-year-old daughter, Lexi. Fortunately, the two older children survived the attack at the hands of their own father. Lexi Mitchell told investigators that she and her brother awoke to find their father trying to cover their mouths and faces and that they had to fight him off. As the prosecutor said during the trial, Lexi saw her father attacking Blake. She did what she could to get him off, and then fled the room. Lexi went to her mother and brought her brothers into the room. Little Blake was unresponsive, and Lexi carried him to her mother. The family then called 911, and the children's grandfather, who lived with the family, ran to alert a nurse who lived next door. Meanwhile, Joseph Mitchell had locked himself in his office, and authorities eventually found him with stab wounds and cuts to his torso and neck that the prosecutor said were self-inflicted. Joseph was described as a loving father who never fought with his wife and who was quite excited about the possibility of landing a job with the Red Cross after a lengthy period of unemployment. Essentially, he would have no reason to harm his family. Though in addition, his defense attorney said that Joseph Mitchell had not been sleeping well recently. He would go to bed, sleep for an hour, wake up, and be up for the rest of the night. The defense then presented evidence of automatism because essentially they wanted to say, listen, he's been dealing with sleep problems, he was sleepwalking, he was not aware of what he was doing, and if you have automatism, then you do not have mens rea or criminal intent to harm someone, right? So essentially, his defense attorney said this was not a man whose intent was to kill his daughter. He was under a lot of stress. He was out of a job. A lot was going on. And as a result of that stress he was under, he was having trouble sleeping and he was sleepwalking and he was not aware at all of what he was doing when he actually harmed his kids. And give some support of this idea that he was sleepwalking and did not actually want to harm his children. His defense attorney brought up the fact that after Joseph's daughter was like biting him and kicking him, he actually just walked away. They said, you know, if he really wanted to harm his kids, 
he would have murdered all of them. Like, he's a big man. He's an adult man. A little... He can handle a 13-year-old, like, punching him, biting him. If he wanted all of his children dead, they would be dead. But he was sleepwalking. He did not know what he was doing. So when his daughter was kicking him and pushing him and biting him, he simply walked away. But if he would have been conscious and he actually wanted to harm his kids, he would have been able to overpower a 13-year-old girl. Now, quite interesting, I think this is a very interesting case of, and a very devastating case of sleepwalking. But there are quite a few more interesting aspects of this case that actually puzzle me. For example, according to investigators, Joseph was active on the family computer at least half an hour before the attacks. And if we follow that medical science, I am not sure that this would give him enough time to fall asleep and reach any of the four non-REM stages of sleep. And like they said, usually sleepwalking happens between stages two, three, and four of REM, of non-REM. So yeah, I'm not sure about that. But also, before attacking his kids, he went to the garage and put on gardening gloves and his wife's jacket. And he also put on a Halloween mask. He then continued to repeatedly turn the lights off and on, which like, these actions, this behavior, it's all so odd. And I guess because it is so odd, it's difficult to find rational explanations for his behavior that night. And it does make it more believable that he was sleepwalking. But then there is a fact that he attacked his middle child, Devon, at least three times. But when his daughter elbowed him, he just walked away, right? And then to top it off, he then locks himself into his office and essentially attempted to take his own life. And that makes me wonder, maybe he woke up after his daughter had like elbowed him and pushed him. That maybe made him snap out of his dream and it made him snap out of his sleepwalking state and it might have woken him up. And at that moment, maybe he realized the damage that he had done and he realized that he was attacking his kids. Maybe he even saw that his son was dead. And that's when he went into his office and was like, I gotta take my own life. Like, I don't know what happened. I don't know. That's what it made me think of. Because if you're sleepwalking, it doesn't make any sense what you do when sleepwalking. But just that step of going into his room and then harming himself, I don't know. But in any case... I lastly want to mention that the prosecution presented evidence that Joseph was really under pressure after being unemployed for so long. So he, it is a fact, like his defense is not wrong. But the way he acts as a result of this pressure that he was under differs if you ask the prosecution. Because essentially the prosecution tried to paint Mitchell as a desperate father who was capable of killing his kids. And the reason is that before these attacks, without his wife's knowledge, Joseph, after his house had been foreclosed, agreed to surrender the keys to a real estate agent on September 22nd, 2010 for just $500. So a day after the attacks took place, Joseph was supposed to give the keys of the house he lived in with his family to a real estate agent because their house had been foreclosed on. Their house wasn't theirs anymore. So the prosecution says, yeah, Joseph was under a lot of pressure, but that did not make him sleepwalk. It made him desperate, and it made him capable of killing his children, or at least his son. And I don't know why he 
would want to kill them. Maybe he was thinking, you know, if he did actually do it and wasn't sleepwalking, maybe he was thinking, you know, we're about to be homeless. It's better for my kids if they're dead. Or maybe he was thinking, if my kids are dead, there will be less of a financial burden. But then again, if he wanted to kill his kids, surely he could have handled them and could have actually killed them. But then again, maybe after killing his son, he instantly was hit with regret and after seeing his other kids fight for their lives so much he instantly decided I can't do this which is when he went to his room his office and tried to take his own life so you know I do not know what to make of any of this and it you know because it's just so dark it is so twisted to think that a parent could murder their own child I want to believe that he was in fact sleepwalking Not that it makes it any less tragic, of course. But in any case, a jury found Joseph Mitchell not guilty of first-degree murder on Wednesday, March 11th, 2015. And he was also not found guilty of two counts of attempted murder. And it is very sad because after this verdict was read, his wife, or ex-wife, I'm not sure at the time, but she was so in shock and so devastated that she actually fainted and she had to be brought out of she was hyperventilating and she had to be brought out of the courtroom on a stretcher so obviously this was a lot for her and she said that it was you know she felt she felt as though she had filled her children and she wasn't able to protect them and that it's heartbreaking obviously and the circumstances are just so strange and what I think is also quite interesting in this case and that brings us back to that question of the legal responsibility and the legality, or at least the legal system that has to give justice, right? Now, the jurors had asked the Superior Court Judge, James Robertson, if they could consider a lesser verdict of manslaughter. But the judge said it was all or nothing, murder or not guilty. And I can understand why, because just as the sane or insanity doesn't work, you know, the the sane or insane automatism doesn't really work. The manslaughter thing also doesn't work because voluntary manslaughter would not work. As with voluntary manslaughter, the person had intent to kill or seriously harm, but they acted in the moment under circumstances that would cause a reasonable person to become less reasonable or, you know, emotionally or mentally disturbed. But as we discussed, under a sleepwalking defense the mens rea or the criminal intent is absent. So voluntary manslaughter doesn't fit here. Involuntary manslaughter would also not work because even though with involuntary manslaughter there is no criminal intent to harm or kill someone, one is said to be criminally negligent. But under the notion of sleepwalking and automatism defense as we know it now, one can also not be found criminally negligent either. And that is interesting because to help with the struggle of law, Shreya Popat and William Winslade actually say that someone who has parasomnia and uses a parasomnia defense essentially should be able, you know, we should be able to find someone with parasomnia criminally negligent. And how that works, I will explain to you next. Shreya Popat and William Winslade, in the same article I mentioned before, or in the same paper I mentioned before, they say the following. It is better to appreciate that violence during parasomnias manifests in different ways and is evoked by different factors in different individuals. 
In accordance, they should, there should be different levels of legal responsibility and appropriate legal consequences. They say that we should consider a gradient based upon a notion of reasonable degree of control, and it would lead to more fruitful prescription of legal responsibility and consequences, and perhaps more justice. On one extreme would be automatisms caused by factors within one's control. Individuals with such automatisms would be held legally responsible for their actions. And this is a similar thinking to Aristotle and his work Ethics, which basically says that even though a drunken individual does not act voluntarily or with full capacity while he is intoxicated, he acts voluntarily and with mental capacity when choosing to become intoxicated and should therefore be held accountable for doing so. An individual whose parasomnia episodes are triggered by excessive alcohol consumption or other factors within their control mirrors this example. Under the current jurisprudence, such a case would be classified as sane automatism since alcohol consumption is an external factor and the parasomniac individual would be acquitted. But by contrast, in this new way of doing things, the action of the parasomniac individual would be classified as automatisms triggered by factors within one's control and the individual would be held legally responsible for his actions. And this kind of made me think of, okay, so in some cases, maybe you would be able to find someone who is a parasomniac criminally negligent because they did not take appropriate actions to avoid going in a state of sleepwalking, so to speak, or they did not take appropriate actions to protect people around them, knowing that they maybe sleepwalk when drinking excessively. You know, you know, do you get what I'm saying? Do you get where I'm coming from? Because I am making a lot of sense to myself right now. But again, I would love to hear your thoughts on this because I have a lot. But then, alas, we have arrived at our final case of today, our third case about parasomnia. And our third and final case is the case of Brian Thomas. These events took place in July of 2008. Brian Thomas and his wife Christine had driven their camper van from Neath to Aberpoth Ceredigion in Wales. And I do not know if I pronounced Ceredigion correct. If you are Welsh and I did not pronounce that correctly, please tell me so. But in any case, the couple had stopped for a night. They had decided that they had driven enough, they'd had dinner with friends, and they said, you know what, we're spending the night in this car park of a pub, or for those not aware with what a pub is, it's a bar. And they decided to, you know, spend the night there, turn in early, catch some sleep, before continuing their travels the next day. Now that night, unfortunately... Some guys showed up at that car park and they started doing things with their cars. They started doing wheel spins, they started doing donuts, they were revving their cars, maybe they were racing a little bit, but in any case, they were causing a lot of ruckus, you know, and a lot of sound, very hectic, maybe they were drinking as well, and it made Brian and Christine feel very unsafe, and I, I get that. I would also not feel comfortable at all. And so what they did is they decided to move their camper van to the upper end of the car park or more I guess to the back of the car park away from those guys doing crazy things with their cars. Now unfortunately this this experience had greatly impacted Brian and after he fell asleep this experience triggered a violent nightmare. Brian dreamt of a man wearing blue jeans and a fleece jacket that had broken into the van and 
was on top of his wife. In his dream, Brian was struggling with this intruder, and he was trying to fight him off and get him away, but he woke up. He woke up from his terrifying dream, and he discovered that he had strangled his own wife. She was not breathing anymore. He woke up, his wife was dead. And again, we're talking here about a REM sleep behavior disorder. So Brian woke up terrified, believing that he had just fought with a stranger and that he had protected his wife. But he had not protected his wife. He had killed his wife. He left the van, the camper van. He called the police and he said, I think I have strangled her. I was fighting with this boy, but there was no boy. It was my wife. When the police arrived at the camper van, Brian was sitting outside the van and he was very distraught. He was in a state of shock. He was sobbing uncontrollably. And he, again, he told the police what he had done and he told them exactly what he dreamt. And again, this is that distinction between the sleepwalking instances, the non-REM sleep and the REM sleep. Because in the earlier cases, Kenneth and Joseph had not remembered a thing. But here we have Brian and Brian remembers exactly what he was dreaming. He was fighting off an intruder. He was trying to protect his wife. But little did he know that he was actually strangling his own wife. Shocking. Absolutely shocking. Now, Brian and his wife, Christine, had been married for a long time and they had two children. They had been happily married and Brian was described as a devoted and loving father and husband. There were no indications whatsoever that anything was wrong with their marriage and Brian had no other issues. For example, we know that Joseph was under a lot of pressure. He had a lot of stress, but there was none of that with Brian. The couple had even booked a Mediterranean cruise to celebrate their upcoming 40th wedding anniversary. And by all means, Brian had no criminal intent to harm, let alone kill his wife. And what happened in this case is different than the other cases because the prosecution actually dropped the case against Brian and he was cleared of murder. The Crown Prosecution Service accepted that Brian had not been in control of his own actions and that he was not a danger to anyone else. And I think that that's very interesting because in the first two cases, we actually had a prosecution that was trying to get people arrested and they wanted to try to get justice. But in this case, the prosecution said, you know, there is no justice to be found because this is clearly just a tragic incident in which Brian had no control of himself and after this case, also, Brian fell into depression. He was extremely sad. And of course, why wouldn't he? Because he loved his wife very much. And he felt guilty for what he had done. So yeah, I'm happy that the prosecution in Brian's case said, you know, there is no justice to be found here because this is just overall a very tragic situation. And yeah, I don't think there is much more that needs to be said about that. I'm not sure where Brian is right now, but wherever he is, I hope that he is doing okay and that he was able to forgive himself. But yeah, there you have it. These are three very different cases in which a sleepwalking defense was used successfully or a parasomnia defense, I guess, to be more specific because in Brian's case, he wasn't sleepwalking, but he was dealing with the REM sleep behavior disorder. So let's just say the parasomnia defense. 
So I really thought this was so interesting and I still think it's so interesting to have this discussion about the legal aspects of it and what is justice in these cases. And I really want to hear from you. What do you think, first of all, of today's episode? Did you like the layout of it? And also, what did you think of these cases? What do you think about the concept of a sleepwalking or parasomniac defense? I would love to hear your thoughts. I truly find this, again, very interesting. And I would love to have more interaction with you guys. So please contact me on Instagram at True Crime Consultant. Share your thoughts with me. Also, if you enjoyed this episode and like hearing my podcasts, please leave a positive five-star review and spread the word. Share it with your friends and family. I would really appreciate that. I am enjoying this podcast. I really like doing this and I'm looking forward to continue being creative and messing about with the layout and, you know, not having the same type of episode all the time. And I want to know also what you guys think of that. And yeah. That was it for today. Thank you for being again here with me. I will see you again soon. Until then, take care of yourselves. Call your mom. Call your grandparents. Do a mental health check on yourself. Reach out to your friends. Check on them. Make sure they're doing okay as well. And also, reminder, it's okay to make mistakes. It is how we learn. It is human. You cannot learn and grow if you don't make the occasional mistakes. Be gentle. Be kind to yourselves. And I will see you guys soon. Ciao.